Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? In this series, I'm talking to artists, musicians, filmmakers, actors, art lovers and other creatives. I'm exploring how curiosity and courage not only creates great art and fuels the arts, but cultivates a healthy mind too. These same attitudes are cultivated in mindfulness practice with scientific and evidence-based results in the treatment of depression, stress and anxiety. So I'm asking, can art save us and help change the global epidemic of mental illness? And my guest this week is Eve Horn, a singer, songwriter, producer, author, award-winning mentor, activist and a mum. After attending the famous 90s Brit School, she was signed to Polydor and EMI. Her first band, Montage, was described as TLC with Balls, touring with the Backstreet Boys, Boyzone and Peter Andre. She went on to join Juice, a girl group with a Christmas number one single in Denmark and millions of streams on Spotify. A dramatic life change followed. Today, Eve spearheads the Unheard campaign for gender equality in the music industry, and this year she has been recognised as a future leader by Key Change, a global movement for equality. Eve, thank you very, very much for joining me today. (laughs) It's an absolute pleasure, Paula, honestly. It really, really is. Thank you so much for having me. Eve, I'd really like to start by quoting you. Because you also describe yourself as a box ticker and you say, I'm a mixed race, gay woman who grew up on a council estate, but I'm willing to put myself in the firing line to make change happen. Is struggle where your courage comes from? 100%. Um, Like that's to answer that quote and your question. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think it is. I think that... um, Oh God, where do I start? I think from, from the beginning, uh, I mean, do you know what? It could even go back to my birth. I was born two months premature and, um, stopped breathing and was getting rushed to a hospital in an ambulance when I started breathing again. And I was like, uh, two pounds or something like that, three pounds, something like that. Oh, um, wow. yeah. Um, amazing. And that's why my mum called me Eve. Oh, bless. Uh, yeah. Oh. Um, and so I think, you know, when when you look at trauma from things like that at birth, because um, mm. I've always, look, like, looking back now, I've always wondered, like, why am I always in this, like, state? I was, I've yeah. always been in a certain state. And I think it's got to do with fight or flight. And obviously, if you go through trauma, it produces a lot more cortisol in your body, which is, you know, neurologically affects your, your physical state. Um, yeah. So I, I think that might have had something to do with it. Don't know, though, um, but possibly. Mm. Um, Born a fighter. Yeah, literally. Like that's as, in simple terms. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. I was born yeah. a fighter. And that's yeah. pretty much all I know, um, not in a negative way, because, you know, my life's been great uh, as much as, as it's been tough, has been tough times. Um, I think growing up with a single parent um, was like, 
I wouldn't want it any other way on one hand because I loved, you know, I didn't want for nothing. We used to do like Sundays, dance to records and reggae. My mum brought us up on reggae and, you know, I had a great foundation. My nan and granddads, we'd go up there every Sunday. I would spend time with my granddad in the allotment um, from a kid. We still have his allotment now. He's passed. It's a tradition oh, now. Wow. My daughter goes up there. Do you know what I mean? It's something. Yeah. So there's been a foundation. You know, my, my granddad were Irish and my nan and granddad were Irish and Scottish. So there was a lot of Celtic. You know, it was a real, I wasn't lacking. But yeah. I think what what created the, the, the pain in that sense is I, on my father's side, I'm the youngest of five girls. Um, right. And they all had some form of relationship with him growing up, except for me. Um, Oh, wow. Not because I guess he went out of his way to, but, you know, I I don't know if their mums were were just more um, pushing it on them or whatever. I don't know. I don't know the situation, but my mum was very a very strong woman. And after seeing me, pining for him and him promising to come when I was like four um, and not turning up so many times and me being left, where, you know, asking where he is, she made a decision and it's probably the best decision that she ever made. Um, and I even to this day, I remember asking him for Mr. Frosty. You remember Mr. Frosty's? I do. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never got it. I never got oh, it. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think... That, you know, but then again, on the on the other side of that, there was, you know, my sister's um, dad, my sister's five years older than me, and um, he he always took me under his wing. Like, he knew I wasn't his, obviously. Um, <laughs> um, they weren't even together. Um, but my my sister's dad always got me birthday cards, money, Christmas cards, Easter eggs, we, he came on family holidays with us and my nan and granddad. Do you yeah. know what I mean? We'd go to dim church yeah. every year with, with yeah, my mum, yeah. my mum's my sister, her kids and that. So it was a nice, you know, there was tradition in our family. Like yeah. we, we would do, so there was structure there and stuff. So I didn't miss out mm. in that sense, but it was an emotional pain of yeah, why, yeah. you know, why, yeah. why me? Why doesn't he want me? Um, mm. Mm. And then, you know, I took on some of, I guess, my mum's struggles as well, you know, being a, a white woman, having kids of colour. She experienced some mm. stuff with family, like disowning her and all of that mm. stuff. So I, mm. inside of me somewhere, was like, I'm going to prove myself for, and I'm going to make my mum proud. And I'm, you know, that it, growing up was my, my message in my head. I'm going to do this because of this you know Mm, um yeah and it was never a negative thing it was just it kind of added to the drive and I think anyone if you look at anyone who is successful at anything today uh they will always say to you there's got to be an end point there's got to be something that drives you to to fulfill what you want and that was my drive um yeah yeah and you know I succeeded like my mum's super proud of me and and Mm. I succeeded in that um yeah. Oh, but, yeah. There's there's lots of successes to talk about. <laughs> but but what's interesting already is that's such an interesting description actually of your childhood experience because um, your sister's dad was obviously very very inclusive. 
So that's a really positive experience. And you had a solid foundation with your family. But as you say, like your mum's own experience, you know, of um, some family rejection, and we start creeping into the territory of discrimination and prejudice, you know, towards mixed race families. You know, that experience of exclusion, you know, and you've, you you kind of experience both. You know, my mum also experienced uh, abuse from, from both our fathers. So that, that's a whole other story. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So there's a lot mm, there mm. that happened as well, mm. um, which is why mm. she's so strong and why she yeah. put her foot down and why she protected us. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got such a clear identity in terms of your own strength and courage, perhaps from your mum's display of strength yeah. and courage. Yeah. That's literally where it comes from. That and my my fat, my nan and granddad, my family, it, it's it's from that. Yeah, definitely. And obviously my own personality built into that. Yeah. There is something that stands out in your childhood too. I don't know if you particularly want to go too close to this because it's a trauma. So you tell me what you'd like to talk about. But it was really shocking to read about your experience of a of a loss of a boyfriend at the age of 14 and I just wondered if you might want to talk a little bit about that because I do think all of these formative childhood experiences are so significant as to what's built who you are today and and that sense of bravery that you have yeah Yeah, it was it was hard it was um we had um so it's his name's Roland Adams and we he's literally just had his 31st anniversary um so as as kids we would we would hang around uh in this place called Thamesmead which is just like that, not far from where I live and it was hugely racist hugely like it, there was a a group of um boys and men that would hang outside of a, a pub called the wild fowler and uh they were they were known to be racist um and every time we there was a load of us obviously we were predominantly black mixed race um but we were just doing our thing you know just teenagers and every time the bus would go past, there'd be bottles thrown at the bus or they'd chase it, mm. you know. So there'd be times um, that, you know, we would be like telling the bus driver not to stop or we'd have to get off at a different bus stop. Sometimes I remember us like having to all duck and run through fields. Um, one of our friends um, uh, had already been stabbed by one of them and survived. Uh, another friend had to jump off the same um the place where Roland died he they they chased him and he had to jump off to kind of get away from them uh and we'd been to the police obviously and we're like you know what are you gonna do and they they just weren't doing nothing and potentially saying you know they can't do anything until they get a body you know until something happens Um, until it's too late yeah and then you know Roland Adams was the most soft-hearted kindest like innocent boy he was literally coming from the youth center um with his brother nathan um and we used to all go around to his and and he was a producer as well music producer he'd make stuff in his bedroom and he rapped as well and he'd do some performance we'd have a local thing down here and he would perform there and 
you know, it was great. And so, yeah, we would go and write, write stuff. And it was just that that's what he what he was. If he was alive now, he'd be a fantastic producer. I can only mm. imagine. And he was lost to a, an attack. Yeah. So they were on their way home from the youth club, uh, waiting at a bus stop and they just attacked them. And, and uh, Nathan, they split up. Nathan ran one way, he ran another, and, and he got stabbed in the neck and collapsed oh. on the flyover. So he lived the other side of the flyover. So he was running yeah. up it. Yeah. And he, he died on, on the actual, on the top of the roundabout. Was there any justice for the attack? Not really, were no. Were they brought to trial? I think they they no. were, but not not what should have happened, no. Um, I think yeah. most of them got away with it. Um, mm. I can't even remember now, but yeah, I think the whole mm. George Floyd thing brought up a lot because you go through life and you push stuff down, don't you? And you, yeah. you, and then that happened. And I remember, I like, I was literally crying for two weeks straight, you know, yeah, because it just brought up all of this stuff that I'd, I'd like put away. Because then after that, Stephen Lawrence got got killed, and he just lives, you know, yeah. fifteen minutes yeah. that way. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a few years after. And yeah, and there's just two things that just really stand out where, um, you know, the fact that when your identity becomes a risk because of racial prejudice, but also with such traumatic events like this, your sense of justice must just rage on. Yeah. And, of course, so much of your work, particularly around the Unheard campaign, which we'll talk about more as we go on, yeah. is so much about justice. Um, when you look back at that event now, would you say that anger has turned into your sense of justice? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, definitely. I think I think growing up I would there was a lot of anger in me. Um I think um, it was it was mixed with like cuz I'm very emotional I'm highly emotional um as well um and and hugely sensitive to energy. And so you can imagine some of the states that I would have got in, you know, growing up as a teenager, hormone imbalance anyway. I have like a lot of health problems as well, you know, trying to navigate my way through that and fulfill my dreams and goals and, you know, adapt to a world that I find painful. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. It's a lot of struggle, isn't it? Yeah. And yet, you kind of did this amazing <laughs> fast track <laughs> into, you know, early fame and success. Yeah. Um, you know, which you, you know, for for listeners who aren't familiar, you might want to talk a little bit about that because it really was like a rocket taking off, and you know, you kind of went from private jets to driving trains in quite an <laughs> unexpected <laughs> trajectory. Do you know what? Everyone's, <laughs> everyone's so like, every us. time I tell, tell people I was a train driver, they're like, what? 
they just don't they don't get it but um, it suits you though you're, you're driving your own train of life aren't yes. you but it's it's such a distinct story you know in, and in the intro when I refer to the fact that there was a dramatic life change but mm. you really had experienced the private jet world of fame hadn't you oh yeah um, yeah I mean it's, yeah. On, on the grand scale you know if, you, if you're talking the Beyonce uh range uh nowhere near but um there was more more than enough like fame there for me to be recognized um by by our fans and stuff like that um and obviously you know when you we're talking the 90s you know things were very different when you're an artist in the 90s you know the record label would would foot the bills for everything and you know you'd get paid per diems and stuff so in the first group i um i i, I basically went straight from from the Brit school uh, and got signed to Polydor. Um, in an, in an, I basically took someone's place who's one of my very good friends now. And uh, she's a singer on Strictly Come Dancing. Um, mm. And so we, I, yeah, we ended up kind of working, um, touring, you know, all over um, England and Europe. We toured with Backstreet Boys and Boyzone. It's our first time doing Wembley. Um, Peter Andre, all of the Radio One Road shows back in the day, um, and we went to Atlanta and worked with Jermaine Dupree, who was responsible for, um, you know, Mariah Carey's albums, and he was married to Janet Jackson for quite a long time as well. So, you yeah. know, and we we went to his house to to record, and, and mm. that was a massive deal mm. in the nineties. And then in the second mm. group, we toured all over, um, you know, Japan. Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, um, God, yeah, all of those places, and uh, and Europe as well with like five and 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 yes, we um, we still have like the most played Christmas single today, twenty years later, over twenty years. Later. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, so yeah, it's a national favorite, isn't it? Yeah, in, in Denmark, it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, I'm super grateful for for that. I mean, and I, I was lucky enough in 2018 to 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 go and perform for the first time in 18 years um, mm. on stage. And you know, my ex was pregnant with our daughter at the time, and mm. it was it was the best <laughs> year of my life. You know, to be able to get up there yeah. perform in front of 16,000 people for the first time in 18 years was just insane. Yeah, because, of course, you could say that, you know, Fast Train of Fame and Success had kind of, it crashed, you know, things changed, you know, new decisions were made about, you know, the band and Massively. what you were going to do next. I, but that that was a hard adjustment, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I, I basically got depression. It literally smacked me in the face. Uh, and mm. we're talking 2000, I came back to the UK and depression wasn't even a thing. You know, I I didn't. No one really knew what it was. No one spoke about it. Um, and I came home, and I'd gone from all my friends being out there living this life, being on morning television, to having to pay to get on a bus. Now, yeah. think about it. I'd gone straight from the Brit School to this. I hadn't even had a job in in as a. I mean, I'd had a paper round and, and worked for my uncle in his calf, but. You know, not yeah, not an actual job in the world as a teenager or anything like that. So you know, by the time I come home, I'm in my early twenties, 
and I'm like, what's going on? And it, it I the I felt like such a failure because I'd had to come back and also the environment was you know so depressing like I came back and like to like literally the week I got back some people had been murdered in their house like down the road and I was like oh you know Mm. um Mm. it was just Mm. dire you know my friends weren't here anymore you know and I was like it's a really extreme roller coaster, Literally. isn't it? Did it make you did it make you feel vulnerable, isolated? I was just a, I did not know what was going on. I, I I couldn't understand what was happening to me. Um I tried everything. I decorated my house the same, you know, colours and everything that it would in Denmark. Um I I went to the gym. I got put on antidepressants and I'd gone through, I don't know how many, I remember they put me on, I think it was Prozac and I was like yawning like constantly within, and I was like, I can't do this. I can't, you know, um, other ones made me worse. You know, they, eventually I I was on something called, um, oh, I was on Citalopram. They made me awful. And then I found Sertraline, which, which are the ones that worked for me. Um, and but all through this, I was still pushing forward. I'd gone and signed up for college. I wanted to do production. I wanted to start my own company. I then signed up to to um, to university to study to become a sound engineer. All through having depression um, and trying to really like hold on to my identity and not know what was happening, what, you know, people would say to me, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine, just get over it. There's worse people out there. Back then you didn't know not to say that to a depressed person. I was like, you're making me worse. Mm -hmm. Like my poor mum didn't have a clue what to do with me. You know, obviously her Mm -hmm. way is like hard, Mm -hmm. you know, get over it or get under it type, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And that doesn't Mm -hmm. work with someone who's got Mm -hmm. depression. Uh, I always say, you Mm -hmm. know, on my podcast, um, to if if you are around anyone that that suffers from from mental illness like just don't don't ask them for anything don't ask them a question because it's too hard for them to answer just hug them don't yeah. say anything and don't say snap out of it don't say anything just hug them and, it, and a mm. lot of the time you'll get mm. resistance but just hold on and it will mm. it will mellow mm. It's such a big process, but that's what really stands out to me, um, knowing that you had hit deep depression. Extremity is such a hard thing to process. And yet, as you said, you were actually still finding really constructive things to do and you kept moving. Where do you think that came from? Do you think this goes back to those formative childhood years of of just having to fight, just yeah. having to get on, just having to be courageous. Yeah, I don't know any other way. <laughs> I don't know any other way. With me, I can't, um, if I sit doing nothing, I question my purpose of life. Um, it's just not an option for me. It's not in my makeup. Like, it's the same as if I couldn't sit and do the same job every single day. I, I can't because I will start questioning what is the point of life? You know, why, why am I here? What, what am I doing? What, what am I doing it for? Who am I helping? And the thing is, I realise if I'm not good mentally and if I'm not fulfilling me, 
everyone around me gets affected. Yeah, because I, I relate to what you're saying from the point of view of being in a working class, single parent family, that it's ironic, perhaps, that there can be advantage in disadvantage in that it does teach you resilience. It does teach you if you want something doing, then get on and do it. And I'd rather that than be a twit in a Velvet Alice band with cushions that doesn't really know how to make things happen. Um, and that seems to be what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, you know, I'm just going through another journey, which I'm describing as, um, you know, like being in the birth canal or being the butterfly um, in the cocoon uh, stage, the awkward, uncomfortable stage that, you know, the wriggling, the, you know, when a baby's coming down the birth canal it's painful it's uncomfortable it's distressing it's all of this stuff um and that's a, like a point in my life where I'm at now but the difference is I can look back and I'm realizing because I'm like yeah I did all of these things and I've always I just haven't stopped and I've, I've got the drive I've got the passion I've got the will but why is nothing ever really stuck? You know, why, why, why is nothing ever continued? You know, we, we, after, um, leaving university, I set up a recording studio with one of the girls from university and, um, it was to promote female producers and we worked with disadvantaged kids. And this was in 2003. Um, yeah. And I did a stint in camp America as well while we're at uni. Uh, <laughs> Oh God! Um, but uh, <laughs> you're you're so lazy. <laughs> what a great experience! An amazing experience that was. But um, you know, uh, but it, nothing stayed. And I'm like, I always I've realised I always depended on other people to help me succeed, and I always relied yeah. on them because I didn't ever think I was good enough to do it on my own. Right. How, how yin and yang is that? How like contradictory is that? I've got this, all this energy mm. and all this push and drive. Mm. Mm. But that sense, is it a sense of inadequacy, a lack of confidence that surprises you every now and then? It's, I don't, I have confidence, but just it's this inner confidence. And, and I don't know if that comes from, you know, being told you're not good enough or, you know, all of those years of, you know, um, I don't know, like as a kid, I, my sister used to be stunning, you know, she's one of those, you know, beautiful mixed race kids. She looked like a bit like Sade growing up, you know, then you've got me, mm -hmm. lanky, you know, but <laughs> right? imagine I, they used to call me olive oil, right? Uh, uh, yeah. You have oh, a Popeye, bless, right? It's a bit harsh. Right? No, but it's the truth. It was either olive oil or Adam because my name's Eve and I was a tomboy. So can you imagine? And, and uh, I, uh, a thing that will never leave me is, like, oh, your sister's beautiful. Like what happened to you? You know, so it's comments oh, wow. like that. Yeah. Mm, that that mm, stick to harsh. you and, and, you know, things like, I don't know, being in the girl group and then getting bullied in the girl group and, you know, all of these other things. There's so many other factors that would have, you know, racism um, growing up, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. just all of these other things that society has thrown you. 
would be battling against my will and my drive and confidence. And that would give me the, or, you know, the, the lack of confidence to believe in myself, even though I do, it's so weird to explain. I do believe in myself, but in the core, there's something that makes me rely on other people to feel that it's, you know, I need them to, to achieve very strange. Yeah, it's a really complex combination because you clearly know how to be courageous. Yeah. And I think one of the disadvantages actually sometimes when people are perceived as strong or courageous is is it's kind of assumed that you just are courageous, you just are brave. And actually it's something that you have to find. Yeah. Um and so you can be a complex person who's courageous, but lacks inner confidence. It's your own battleground, isn't it? Um, and it's interesting because I know that when we talk about identity and that battleground of, you know, racial discrimination mm-hmm. um, and an identity or experience growing up, you've you've often said that it's assumed you're a gangster rapper. It is. <laughs> you know, I mean, it come is. on, people, <laughs> stereotyping identity or what? But the mind is so quick to slap these labels on. Yeah. But yeah, so you're the gangster rapper. Yeah, and, and you know me, obviously. Mm. Am I anything? <laughs> soppy love song, soppy love song. Exactly. <laughs> you big old softy. <laughs> It's the complete opposite, isn't it? Like I am like I will cry at Kate Kate Bush covers. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I mean. Like I couldn't be a gangster rapper if I tr- like even if I tried really hard. I'd probably be able to pose like one, but you know it's it's funny because I think growing up obviously on a council there is a side of me that is very, you know, naught to ten, you know, don't and and that's a side of me that I've tried to kind of not get rid of because it's who I am, but I don't need to, I don't want to have that aggression. And I, you know, I moved away from that a long time ago and learned to become calm and, you know, it's still always a work in progress, but you know, I never just, Oh, like today, the situation that I had today, I'm standing there watching two grown women have this full blown argument because one gave the other one a dirty look one's got four kids and I've took my headphones out and I'm like we're in the middle of a war in Europe like love people love you know like love Mm -hmm. honestly it's there's what this is what is this it's pointless like love Mm -hmm. you know it's all about your frequency that you you resonate at and I've been in that place for a long time um yeah I still get angry but you know yeah, yeah. But it, it is, I mean, you know, I know we can, you know, we laugh because it is so ridiculous, the whole gangster rapper thing, but it's pointing at that problem of um, stereotyping, isn't it? And how quick m- minds get tripped into automatic thinking. Yeah, I get stereotyped all the time, all the time. Like, you know, especially mm. when I was working on the trains, it was, it was, they'd be like, oh, yeah she's got attitude but then you'd you'd have like an italian girl going mental next to me swearing oh and they they'd laugh because she's a hot-headed italian and they find it 
funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but because yeah, I won't yeah. allow someone to call me a C-U-N-T or swear at me, mm. um, because that's a, it's just everyone's, it's just the environment of, of that, that work environment. Yeah. You know, I had to, mm. I came from working at Apple where everything's about customer service to having to mm. swear in my vocabulary to, to fit in. Um, and you mm. do, you adapt to your environment, don't you? Um, but because I wouldn't allow it and, then I'm the one with the attitude. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? How it's always yeah, I'd turned never, around. <laughs> I'd never gone in without saying, hi, how is everyone? Polite, which I'd been taught by my my mum and my grandparents. You respect your elders, you know. And another thing, I would never, ever start a fight, ever, in my life, never have. Um, been in fights where I've protected myself or other people, but never started one. The amount of yeah. times I've been punched in the face by men, wow. Because yeah, a, a random beyond. man decides to walk past and slap my girlfriend's backside and then when yeah. I question it, I get punched mm. in the face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? It really is astonishing um, that, you know, this these level of sexual politics, identity yeah. politics, you know, exists. How, how does all this change, Eve, when we meet you now aka magpie <laughs> what's your experience yeah what's your experience now is your artist name is magpie but maybe, maybe tell us a bit about you know the co-writing you, you know you've done some really impressive work how does it feel to be magpie if you like and in terms of identity well i mean the reason i literally chose that name is because I identify with it on so many different ways. I mean, um, obviously, being mixed race, a magpie is black and white. Um, I believe very much in the universe and frequency and that, you know, everything in this universe is frequency um, and we resonate at certain frequencies. And obviously, black and white aren't, colors their frequencies well all colors frequency but you know um so yeah I resonate with it on that as well and I just think yeah it was just I just really like the name and because I'm I release things now not because I want to be an artist do you know what I mean I don't want to be a performing artist should I say I release because I have to express. So I just put them out there and I don't care what happens to them. <laughs> I know that sounds really crazy, but I had a massive hang up for so long because being an artist was my job. It was my profession that it took me so long to let go of the fact that it had to be a number one or it had to be in the charts or it had to be you know, doing so well f for me to be, you know, able to hold the name of an artist. And I, I feel the same with production and, and songwriting as well. I think, you know, because it had been my career, I blocked myself through my depression as well when I kept thinking I was a failure um, because I was holding on to this fake belief of, you know, it has to be in the charts before you can call yourself a producer, songwriter or, or an artist. And it doesn't. The minute you write a song, 
the minute you write stuff down on paper and record it, you know, on a phone or whatever, you you know, you can call yourself a songwriter. And the same as a producer, you yeah. have to be producing for known artists or, you know, it's there's so many different things like and, and I think, you know, that's why I chose that um artist name and, and yeah, so now I, I just I do things for me. <laughs> And, and, and the co-writing credits are, are, I mean, they are impressive. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know. I've, I've written with um, Mo Pleasure, who's, he calls me big uh, little sis now, actually. For, we, we went on a songwriting retreat and, and really connected. And he's obviously, you know, written and performed with, with loads of people like Michael Jackson and um, he's Brett Midler's, I think, producer and... Uh, what's his famous band he he worked with? I can't ever remember the name. Earth, Wind and Fire. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and Maria Christensen, who wrote J Lo's massive hit. Um, mm. uh, Paddy McGuinness. I've I've co-written with a lot of people. Um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's I love song. I think songwriting is the most amazing thing both for its craft and you know your mental health yeah in terms of is it the role of expression yeah Yeah. it's so vital and key um you know and and I use it in my program um yeah so yeah it's uh it's so important it does stand out that your life is kind of an extreme roller coaster because you know we were talking about the tough childhood stuff then hitting the early fame and success then that changing and that period of depression but actually even then you were constructively studying university starting the studio um and now of course as you were just telling us you've been successfully working as an artist and as a co-writer aka magpie um you know with really impressive credits so it just seems to me like the roller coaster is you know on a high again you know it's it's going up um but of course this time your purpose is even clearer because you've launched the unheard campaign and I wondered if for the sake of the listeners if you want to give some context on that yeah sure I mean you know I obviously being in the a train driver for for like six it was actually a shunter a shunter is called it's called a shunter but also a depot assistant it's the person who um basically helps with the trains in the depot so it was night work and it was very you know non-stop you know you're uncoupling trains pulling them apart doing safety checks you know and then I became a trainer in that in that um, role and an assessor and I studied mechanical engineering and that's when I kind of like you know because I'm Catholic as well but what by studying mechanical engineering one of the first things that I read was um in the first section was matter can't be created or destroyed and I I was just like you know because I was like you know yes I'm religious but religion for me had a lot of issues being gay and all of that other stuff um yeah and restrictions and also seeing people that were catholic but not acting well and acting with love and and just all of the issues that man-made religion 
uh, has on this world today. And this just kind of took it to a higher level. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, it's just bigger than that. Um, but anyway, I tried to make that job, you know, work for me and, and be as meaningful as I could. But essentially, like, I was like, my soul's dying. I feel like a circle trying to fit into a square. I need to get out. Um, and I ended up leaving and getting some counselling, some CBT. Um, again, been for a lot of bullying in that place. Um, and. Uh, stress and part of it you know could be because I'm someone who's outspoken and I won't allow people to act badly and and I, I can't sit down and let things I just can't do it I can't be the person that just lets stuff happen knowing things are wrong and people are acting wrong can't do it so anyway I um I ended up like just jumping uh I was like I have to get back into music and yeah then I started the uh, peak music UK and um originally I started it because I wanted to provide production for songwriters uh because being both I realized that a lot of songwriters don't have the confidence in a studio environment um they don't know the language that producers use and I know both so I wanted to bridge that gap for them so that they could go in broaden their tool pool um and also uh I was starting to do songwriting retreats a friend of mine's got a beautiful house in the mountains in Italy and that was all going great. And then COVID happened and, you know, I managed to run one workshop, which was great. It sold out and the retreat was fully booked, but I had to obviously refund everyone because it didn't happen. Um, and then I had to think, great, I've just started this company and now I can't do anything in person because everything was in the person. The roller continues. Yeah. It's so hard, isn't And it? so I was sat there going, well, what do I do? Like, what? what am I supposed to do? I'd been performing and everything that all got cancelled. Um, and, uh, and so I really had to look at myself and, and my journey. And I'd, I'd been on this like mastermind business mastermind. Uh, and it made me look at what, why I'm doing what I'm doing now. And then look at my trends over the years. And one of the, I realized that everything that I had done in every single job was training and mentoring, first of all, always. When I was at Apple, I became a mentor and a trainer, train driver, trainer. When I ran my own business uh, in the studio, we would train young kids, um, you know, and teach them how to use logic. And, you know, it, everything was the same. The other thing was women in, in music. It was another real massive passion of mine. Um, disadvantaged kids and the LGBTQIA plus community. And I was like, yeah, I'm really passionate about them. So I, I really kind of looked at all of that around those things and was like, right, my business needs to address these issues. And then when the campaign was born, uh, born I looked at the last 20 years. So when I studied to be a sound engineer, I was one of six women and the only one of colour. Pretty much 20 years later, the statistics for female producers is 2%. It fluctuates between two and three. Um, and I was like, what the hell's been going on? Like, I've pretty much not even really been in the industry as, as doing, you know, actively. And nothing's changed. And there are a lot of, like, Facebooks. There, are, there were women that set up companies and stuff that were doing, making moves already. So I was kind of coming from the back in that sense. I'm still pretty much I class myself as running up from the back still 
because they're they're you know making great waves um but i was like how can i do some it's all good me being in these groups and talking about it but what can i do what action can i take and that's when i started the campaign and my aim was to just have a t-shirt campaign that can be a visual campaign where everyone can get on board it's not just you know all of these women that were already doing stuff in these amazing companies and these these you know facebook groups and stuff they can all get on board and we can kind of show solidarity together and raise awareness for this issue um so yeah that's structural underrepresentation isn't it right yes the music industry yeah and it's kind of led me then to to then you know just the more i've spoken out the more i've kind of become put myself in spaces so i'm a i'm a representative for uk music diversity task force so their 10 point plan across the whole music industry to make changes you know in diversity uh i'm i'm a representative for the music producers guild on that um you know and I'm speaking up a lot more in those areas and it's just so important to for me to be present and visible for young women trans non-binary people who might identify with someone of color um that is in that space so they know that that music production um sound engineering they're they're options for them as careers uh, which is also why I do a lot of stuff with schools and universities as well, because it's about changing things, you know, universities on their perspectives. What are they showing? A white man leaning over a desk? It's not going to attract women, is it? It's not going to attract anyone of colour either, you know? And so it's it's these small things and these changes that need to be, and that's why when I said in that quote, I'm not going to shut up, it's like my time is done. You know, I've done what I want to do in terms of I've I've done the career I've achieved. I need to, my purpose, I feel, is to give back, to raise awareness, to shout, to make change. Even if it's the smallest part I can do, that for me is is what my life has to be about. And obviously having my daughter now, even more so. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what we quoted at the beginning, where you say, I'm willing to put myself in the firing line to make change happen. And it's interesting that you talk about purpose, because that's certainly recognised by neuroscientists and psychologists um, in the space of mental health, that having a clear purpose is really healthy for our minds. And that really seems to be such a crystal clear driving force for you, Um, whether it's artistic purpose or whether it's about justice or raising awareness. Um, It seems that, would you say it's purpose where is where your courage sits best? Maybe, maybe. I don't know, it's hard because I always know I'm an ideas person. I have so many ideas all the time. Like it's exhausting, <laughs> um, but beautiful, beautiful at the same time. But um, I think that I've gone, I've always been someone, you know, it's very hard because when you're around or in an environment where people aren't as courageous as you, and this is where I realized that I've 
I've kind of, you know, going back to me saying that I, my, my self-belief is not great because I, I question myself so much because of what other people say. And then I dull myself down as a result because they're telling me that I shouldn't be like that. So therefore I'm like going against my natural thing. And my natural thing is to speak out always. It has been since I've been a kid. I'm not the type of person who's going to sit and let things lie. But when you're told by, you know, people that are around you that, that love you or are supposed to love you and care about you that, you know, you're embarrassing them because you're being too loud or, you know, you're, you know, you've always, there's always an issue. There's always something, you know, it makes, and being a sensitive person, it hurts. So then I'm like, well, then there's something wrong with me. But the reality is they're reflecting their reality on me and their limitations on me because it's not something they would do. They wouldn't go out and speak because they don't have the balls. They wouldn't go out and say something because it's just, oh, no, just leave it. You know, it's not, it's not really you know, they might not think it's their place or that they shouldn't do it, but everyone should speak up when something is not right. Everyone. But not everyone has the courage to do it, it seems. Yeah, um, but they're very, they've, they've got enough courage to tell you that you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And I'm realising yeah. in my young 45 years that these, are, these have been some of my issues. I've listened too much to people that have got limiting beliefs and limiting behavior. And I don't fit into that mold. Yeah. I just don't fit into it. And, but I've surrounded myself with those people, unfortunately, um, and been loyal to those people. I'm also a very loyal person, but loyalty does not get you anywhere if it's to the wrong person. That's another thing I've learned. Oh God, I need to write this stuff down. (laughs) <laughs> all these revelations just coming yeah, yeah, out yeah, yeah it's, in, it's such interesting um territory to, to talk about and when it is actually revealing things to yourself even you know yeah. it's it's it shows you doesn't it the importance of reflection and self-reflection yeah. you, know, you know that sometimes is the role of mindfulness but any kind of uh, talking therapy it's really important isn't it to be able to sort of go back and observe and rethink um and not just have the same thoughts and I think what you're doing with the unheard music campaign is so liberating on so many levels in terms of how you're giving voice and raising voice raising visibility and that it's actually a great act of compassion because it's increasingly important. There's um, the Compassion Institute now, um, you know, where neuroscientists and psychologists are recognizing that compassion isn't the role of empathy um, and feeling sympathetic, for example. It's the role of action. And that's where your emphasis is. I want to do something about this, about this structural inequality in the music industry Mm. um you know your your courage is also a huge act of compassion yeah yeah I don't I don't see it that way though I mean because when you're doing it you don't look you don't do you know what I mean you don't like put labels on it you just you just do it (laughs) because it's right yeah 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 
What are your hopes for the Unheard music campaign? Well, I mean, you know, I think there's massive change already happening. Slowly, but it's happening. You know, it really, really is happening. Uh, And I am just grateful to uh, be be in it. You know, like this, this massive wave's going like this, yeah? And I'm like one of the little molecules in this wave. Oh, hey, you know, I'm, I'm helping in my little way. And, and that, that, do you know what I mean? Like that means so much. I'm, I'm in this move, you know, this movement of change is happening and I'm a part of it. And, and yeah, you know, that's kind of, for me is like my little legacy that I can hand down to, to my daughter and be like, you know what, you know, I, I helped in my little way with that. And, you know, I did what I could to raise awareness and make change. And, you know, it's the same, you know, with my podcast. And when I talk about, you know, it goes even further into, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about today, like anyone who's been unheard in any level, um, it provides them a platform to to tell their story. Because, you know, just like I'm telling my story here, that's another reason why I started it. Because so many people started hearing me talk and and it like resonated with them in some way. And yeah, it just made me realize and it's another reason for me not to shut up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you're reducing a lot, I imagine, of isolation, you know, a lot of women who feel disconnected or isolated. And I equally wondered, as positive as it is, spearheading, that unheard campaign is whether leadership is lonely at all. I'm so lonely right now. I'm not even going to lie. Um, I think because, but I think when anybody is trying to to do anything and be successful at it, they've got to be lonely. I think it's just been magnified because of my my life situation, you know, with with my breakup of my relationship um, and having a little baby, uh, a toddler, um, hasn't helped. But you know, when people want you to go somewhere, you've got to really focus on what is going to move you forward and the energy that you want to be around and. You ha- when you're running a business on your own or whatever, there has to be consistency. And, you know, if I'm not consistent, uh, then it's just not going to work, you know. So it's lonely. It is lonely. And obviously when you're running a business from home on your own, um, yeah, it is. But you have to go back in those really hard times, you know, where you might be crying and being like, what am I doing it for? Like, it's so hard. Life's crap. You know, I've got no one. I feel so alone. No one phones me. No one this, no one that. Why am I doing it? What is it for? You know, and uh, again, I've learned when, you know, and this obviously is a message to listeners as well, whenever you're feeling in that space and I can attach it to when you're depressed. Depression is a very selfish space. Uh, And I say selfish, not meaning that it's an intentional selfish space because you can't control it, but it's a very selfish disease because everything 
happens in your mind is all about you. Why is no one contacting me? Why am I this? Why me? Why me? Why am I the one that doesn't get the success? Why is it everyone else? Why me? Why me? And you end up in this, and it, you just can't see a way out, and it gets so overwhelming, and everything is just becomes you and expectation on everyone else. So one of the ways that, you know, obviously having gone for it, you can look above, down into it now, and you can see what's happening. You can quickly catch yourself and manage it. So instantly, whenever I feel like that, I'll do something that I'll go outside and smile at everyone. <laughs> or I will uh, be like, why am I doing this? What's it for? Who's it for? I think about my daughter. And then I think about, you know, my mum and what she's been through and, you know, all the people that might need to hear what I've got to say or, you know, if I can help one person listening to something, that's the reason I have to do it and that's why I have to spend longer and that's why I have to be alone in this moment going back to being in the cocoon or the birth canal, that uncomfortable, awkward, painful place is where I'm at right now. And when you know that and you can embrace it and you have these moments you can manage them much better and you know have the hope and the the faith that you're going to fly you know yeah 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 it, it's 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 really genuinely um impressive and exceptionally kind in terms of how you maintain your purpose and to end, because sadly the time goes so fast, um, I thought it would be lovely to mention your ridiculously gorgeous daughter that I regularly ask you to hand her over to me. <laughs> but if, um, you know, just blunt, give me her. Um, whether just give me your curiosity. Yeah, just give me her. Uh, whether curiosity encourages something that you're happily imparting or sharing with her, encouraging her to be curious in her own life and courageous in her own life. I just wondered what your thoughts were in terms of your daughter. 100%. You know, I I always, you know, let her... I'm like another child in the house, you know. Obviously, you know, I'm quite you know, eat your food and do all of that. But I am a child, so we, we're we very playful and loving. And she needs to know, first of all, that I love her and she needs to feel, you know, content and home when she's with me. Um, but, yeah, like I always, you know, I let her do whatever she she wants, you know, pretty much because she's such a good kid. I encourage her to, you know, just do whatever as long as she's careful, you know, then then that's all that matters. But I will all yeah, I'll always encourage her to be courageous and try different things and not hold her back based on my restrictions or my beliefs or anything like that. Like she's she's got her own life, she needs to fly and do do her thing and I'll just be just nudging her along, you know being there holding her hand the whole time and obviously you know if she falls get back up you know I'm teaching her at the moment as well one of the things is like um you know she's only three but I'm I'm saying like you know if she can't do it I'm like what do we do if we can't do it we try again 
And what do we do if we can't do it? We try again and we keep trying and then we ask for help. Do you know what I mean? But, you know, I'm teaching her to to not give up straight away. You know, it's just don't allow that to be your default. <laughs> I can't do it. Did you try? No. <laughs> you know, so that that's where I'm at with her right now. Um, yeah. And, yeah, she's just yeah. amazing. She's amazing. Yeah. No, it's beautiful, and and uh, you know you're a, you're a fabulous mum. You're full of creativity as an artist, and you're kindly courageous uh, as the person you are. You know, investing you know your life energy in, into this campaign in order to insist, as you always say, to insist on equality, uh, particularly for women across the music industry. Eve, I have to say such a huge thank you, Um, not just for your time, but for being prepared to talk so honestly and particularly about such painful things and even trauma in your life. Um, It's a really generous act and I want to thank you sincerely for sharing that with us today. It's an absolute pleasure, honestly. It's just, you know, it's so easy with you because, you know, I, I just love who you are and, you know, you've helped me in so many ways and you're a great human being equally okay let's not let's not forget that thank you very much that's you being generous again no that's me being honest honest okay bless you Um, so thank you it's been an absolute honour thank you so much thank you Eve and I'll see you soon